Well, welcome to another one of the Branch Online Sermons. Sometimes I think the words that we read in the Bible are not necessarily words that we need to hear for today, but they're words that are preparing us for a different time. They might be words that are preparing us to suffer, but we're not suffering at the moment. They might be words that are preparing us for death, but we're not dying yet. They might be words that are preparing us to be parents, but we're not parents at the moment. Sometimes the things that we need to hear are not for right now, but in the future. Sometimes, too, the things that we hear are not so much to help us grow, but to help us to help others others grow. Uh, sometimes, too, the words that we hear are to uh, help us deal with things in the past. But sometimes the words that we hear are words to help us with what we're dealing with right now. They're words for the present moment. And as I've prepared the message for this week, I've become more and more convinced that that's true of the chapter of Hebrews that we're looking at today. I think these words, wherever we are in life, wherever we are with God, these words in this chapter are words that each of us need to hear for ourselves and that each of us also need to hear for each other. No matter what the world looks like around us, we always need to hear the words in this chapter. But looking at the way that the world is at the moment, I think that we need these words more than we've ever needed them. And I don't mean that I'm worried about what's going to happen to the world. I'm not particularly worried at all really about what might happen to the world. God's got that in control and I'm happy to leave that to him. But what I am concerned about is how Christians will respond to the mounting pressures that we face in all areas of life. Well, in the passage today, God tells us exactly how we should respond. God gives us three let us's, that is three let us exhortations, three let us exhortations, one reminder and a final command. The passage that we're looking at today and which I think we need to hear more than ever is Hebrews chapter 10 verse 19 to 39. And if you haven't read that, please pause the video and read that now. The passage begins, this passage in chapter 10, begins with a therefore. And as the saying goes, whenever you see a therefore, you need to ask, what is it therefore? The therefore connects back with chapters 8 and 10 about the new covenant to the words about the high priesthood of Jesus in chapter 7 to the warning about being almost a Christian in chapter 5 and 6 to the warning uh, to be not like Israel in chapter 3 and 4 to the celebration of the wonder of Jesus, the Son of God, in chapter 1 and 2, who has become like us to redeem us. And the writer says, in view of all that, in view of all that, therefore... This is the big point of application. These verses here that we're looking at today are the big point of application of all that has gone before in the book of Hebrews. And what is the point of application in summary? Well, it's this. Therefore, take up what God has provided through Jesus and don't lose it. Verse 19, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed 
with pure water. Therefore, because Jesus has made the way for us to draw near to God by tearing down the sin that separated us from God, by washing us in our innermost places so that we can approach God in sincerity and with confidence. Therefore, because Jesus has made the way for us to draw near to God, let's take up that opportunity. Let's draw near to God. How do we find the strength that we need to continue in the Christian life? How do we find the power to overcome temptation? Where do we receive the grace that lifts us up when we're weary and that lifts us up and enables us to soar like eagles. God says we find it in drawing near to him. The writer of Psalm 73 says, But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. The writer of Hebrews says we can come without hesitation, confidently, freely, without fear. We can draw near right into the presence of God through Jesus. So why not then come and spend time there? Why not draw near to God? How do we do that? How do we draw near to God in practice? Well, we draw near to God through Jesus. And the primary way that we do that, draw near to God through Jesus, is by hearing again and again God's words about the good news of what he has done in, uh, in Jesus. Those words that we find in the Bible. We draw near not just by hearing God's words in the Bible, but also then by responding to those words and approaching him through, through prayer in Jesus' name. Reading the Bible and prayer is it, not in itself drawing near to God. You can read the Bible and pray without drawing near to God at all. Uh, so often we do that. We read the Bible and pray as an end in itself. But reading the Bible and praying is not an end in itself. It's a means to an end. It's a means by which we draw near to God, by, by which we hear God speak to us and by which we speak to God in prayer. And the writer of Hebrews says, since God has made this way for us through Jesus to draw near to him, let's take it up. The application of the first 10 chapters of Hebrews is not no has made a way for us to him through Jesus. The application is knowing that God has made a way. Let's take it up. What good is it to know that Jesus has made a way if we don't use it? If we don't actually draw near and find help in our time of need? It's like being offered a million dollars and being too lazy to take it up. And the writer says, don't be like that. Don't just know that it's on offer. Take it up. Knowing that we can enter the most holy place, knowing that we can draw near to God, knowing that we can speak to God in prayer and enjoy God and praise God with our lips, knowing those things does us no good whatsoever unless that knowledge actually leads us to draw near to God. And yet it's so easy, isn't it, isn't it for us to not draw near? It's so easy to know the theory of it, but to be so mired in the busyness of life that we never do it. And let's be honest, despite the pandemic offering us a perfect opportunity to do that, for so many of us, it hasn't helped us at all. I find myself, not just at the moment, but again and again every year, having the same conversation with people. They say something like, I need to spend more time with God. And I say, yes, you do. And then I say, 
What are you going to do about it? And they say, I don't know. And then 12 months later, we have the same conversation all over again. Drawing near to God is not rocket science. It doesn't take a theological degree. It doesn't take an enormous intellect or special skills. It just takes saying, I'm going to carve out time to do it. And it takes giving up other things that you're filling your time with. If you're not drawing near to God every day, uh, every single day, then before you get up from listening to this sermon, work out when you're going to do it and how you're going to do it. In fact, you might, this is so important that you might like to stop the video now and not start again until you've worked out when and where and how you are going to draw near to God. If you don't have time, then cancel everything else in your life until you have the time to draw near to God. Cancel your gym membership. Cancel your sports commitments, if there are any left. Cancel Netflix. Unplug your television. Lock up your phone and your iPad or your tablet. Delete Facebook. Delete Instagram. Delete WhatsApp. Cancel the FaceTime chats that you have with friends and family. Throw away the keys of your car. Lock every one of your books in the garage. Do whatever, is it, whatever it takes to make time to draw near to God. Jesus has died to make a way for us to draw near to God. The least that we can do is to take that up. And when we do that, when we draw near to God, we'll find that what's offered on offer to us in doing that, in drawing near to him, we'll find that what is on offer to us in drawing near to him is everything that we need for life and godliness. Everything that you think you need and everything else, whether it's television or family and friends or social media or sport or food or sleep or holidays, everything you think you need in all those other things, you will find that everything that you need for every day and every moment of each day is found in the presence of God through Jesus. If you're not spending time near God, drawing near to him, then you are sleepwalking into a catastrophe. So the first exhortation in this part of Hebrews is to draw near to God, to not just know about the opportunity, but to actually take it up. The second exhortation, the second let us, comes in verse 23. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. As well as drawing near to God through Jesus, we are to hold firmly onto the hope of the gospel. The hope we profess is the confession of hope. It's God's promises that have been confirmed and enacted in Jesus. The reason we're to hold on to those promises firmly is because he who promised him is faithful. God is faithful. There are a few things, I think, that are so destructive to our perseverance in the Christian faith as doubt in the promises of the gospel and in the faithfulness of God. In any relationship, it's really hard to continue when we doubt the reliability or the goodness or the faithfulness of the other person. If we don't trust them, we won't remain faithful to them. And the same is true in our relationship with God. Uh, we can doubt the goodness of God. Uh, we might ask, is God really good? Is God really merciful? Uh, we might doubt the faithfulness of God. Will he really do what he's promised? 
We might doubt God's power. Is he really able to do what he's promised? But God reminds us here, yes, he is faithful. He is good. He'll do everything that he's promised. And if we struggle to take God at his word, we can also look at his actions. God hasn't destroyed the world when it fell back into sin, when it fell into sin, but he's made a way for people to come back to him through Jesus. God has shown mercy again and again throughout the history of the world. He's sent his reign on both the righteous and the unrighteous. But most of all, he sent his own son, Jesus, to rescue us, to take the penalty that we deserved. Even if we can't solve all the philosophical conundrums uh, that puzzle us about God and who he is, we can still look at God's word. We can still look at God's actions and know that he is faithful and that he will do what he has promised. So the first exaltation is to draw near to God. The second is to hold unswervingly to the confession of of hope in Jesus. The third let us then is in verse 24. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. How do we persevere until the end? We spur one another on, the writer says, to love and good deeds. The word spur on is actually quite a firm kind of word. It can also mean something like provoke, as in provoke somebody to anger. The writer's not saying we should provoke each other to anger, but he is saying that we should work really hard to spur one another on. In fact, the translation spur one another on is actually pretty good because a spur is a sharp spike to make a horse run. That's sort of what's in mind here. We need to really stir each other up, really push each other toward love and good deeds. And notice, too, that spurring one another on requires not giving up meeting together. It seems that some people in the time of the book of Hebrews were giving up doing that. They were giving up meeting together. But God says that's disastrous. Keep meeting together and keep spurring one another on toward love and good deeds. That's a particularly important word for us at the moment because clearly coronavirus has meant that we haven't been able to do that like we're used to. We haven't been able to meet together. But the danger of that is that we'll become sluggish because of our present circumstances. And because of that sluggishness, we'll maybe give up the gospel entirely. You see that so often. Somebody stops coming regularly to church. Uh, they stop making an effort to meet up with other Christians, to meet up with their gross growth group, uh, eventually they stop coming altogether, uh, or their relationship with God becomes so thin in real terms, so tangential to the rest of their life, that it becomes essentially meaningless. And throughout this whole period of coronavirus, our greatest worry as the leadership of the church has been people just quietly slipping away from the gospel. That's why we've been encouraging people as best as we can to meet with others, whether that was on Zoom uh, at first or now in person, because there are few more dangerous places to be as a Christian than not regularly meeting up with other Christians. 
But it's not as though just meeting up in and of itself is what we need. Meeting together is just the forum for spurring one another on toward love and good deeds. If one of the challenges of COVID-19 has been that we haven't been able to meet in person like we used to, one of the positives has been that in some parts of the church, at least, it's led to people doing more to spur one another on. Some people have started meeting up with each other in, in other ways, uh, whether that's to read the Bible and pray. Uh, one pair in the church took up the opportunity to work through a Christian book together. In the after-church Zoom meetings, we've been able to pray with people we might never have been able to pray with before. When has that ever happened after a church service that we break up into little groups uh, to pray with people of all different ages and from all different kinds of backgrounds? Or, or when is it that we've broken up into groups to reflect on the sermon uh, and to talk about how we can uh, put those things into practice in our lives? One thing that COVID-19 has highlighted is how thin maybe our gatherings are in terms of spurring one another on to love and good deeds. We might do that well with the up and down, that is, the relating between us and God as individuals, uh, us relating to God in our gatherings. We might do it well front to back, uh, the way that the preacher or the service leader uh, communicates with us and we receive what they're saying. But how can we grow in our gatherings, not just being up and down and front to back, but side to side? How can we spur one another on to love and good deeds? How can we take those opportunities of meeting together to pray with others, to encourage others, to find out how they're going uh, and to spur them on in the Christian life? As we look ahead to gathering again on Sunday, whether that's in the next few weeks or in the months ahead, what lies heavily on my heart and on the heart, I think, of those of us who are in leadership is how can we do that? How can we really take our times of gathering for them to be places where we stir one another up toward love and good deeds? And we need to think more broadly, too, than just what we do on Sunday or just what we do in growth groups. We need to ask the question, how as Christians in all of our life can we find opportunities to meet with each other to stir one another up to love and good deeds. You might encourage someone to grow in their Christ-like love for their husband or wife. You might ask how they're going as a faithful father or mother. You might spur them on to share the gospel with their workmates and neighbours, even though they're a bit scared about it. You might pray with them every week to that end. Uh, you might challenge them over a sin in their life and support them as they seek to put that sin out of their life. You might ask them with how they're going with drawing near to God. In all those ways, we can encourage each other and spur one another on toward love and good deeds. A couple of months ago, before this pandemic started, I was able to join in the celebration of a friend of mine. Uh, and at the end of that time celebrating, at the end of that party, uh, he said that before we leave, we should each come to him and exhort him. And so we formed a long line, waiting our turn to exhort him to continue, continue faithfully in the Christian life. Now that might sound strange to us because we've never done anything like that before. But if we are to persevere in the Christian life, and if those around us are going to persevere in the Christian life, then we need to embrace the awkwardness of doing things like that and just do it 
and just spur one another on toward love and good deeds. So the first exhortation in this passage is to draw near to God. The second is to hold unswervingly to our confession. The third is to spur one another on. The writer then reminds us of the enormous cost of trampling on the gospel. He says in verse 26, If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. The issue here is deliberately going on sinning after we know the truth. It's the same issue that we've seen before in Hebrews. The issue is not that sin still exists in the lives of believers. The issue is complacency towards sin and indifference towards sin and even acceptance of sin, whether that's out of hard-heartedness or out of a kind of a false belief that we can do whatever we want because God will just forgive us. But how do you know if that's you? How do you know if you're in that situation of going on deliberately sinning? The way to test that and examine that is to look at how you respond to sin in your life. Do you even ever think about sin in your life? Do you ever confess sin to God? Are you ever sorry that you have sinned against God? And do you fight against those sins returning? How do you respond when you discover a sin in your life, whether that's because you see it yourself or because somebody else points it out to you? Do you deny it? Do you hide it? Do you justify it? Or do you fall on your knees before God, seek his mercy once again in the cross and rejoice in his love in Jesus? Do you seek God to end that sin in your life? Uh, or do you just want him to forgive you so that you can go back to it? Do you nurse that sin in your life? Do you cultivate it? Do you protect it? Do you hide it? Do you feed it? Or is it there even though you don't want it to be? John Ensor says in his book, The Great Work of the Gospel, the difference between pigs and sheep is that while sheep stumble, pigs wallow. Pigs love living in the mud. They keep themselves in it. They, they live there. But while a sheep might stumble into the mud again and again and again, they always get up. By God's grace uh, and God's mercy, they seek to leave the mud behind. And so the writer says, for those who keep living in the mud, all that awaits them is a fearful expectation of judgment from God. Verse 29, how much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified them and who has insulted the spirit of grace? Then in verse 31, it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. As you press on in the Christian life, as you face daily challenges, as you face temptation to abandon the faith, or maybe just to wind down your seriousness and your zeal just for a bit, you need to remember the cost. As you're tempted to keep giving in to this sin or to that sin, you need to remember the cost of doing that. One swallow doesn't make a summer. One sin doesn't mean that uh, you're in danger of the judgment of God. But if you keep 
giving in and keep hardening your heart and keep going further and further down that road, eventually you'll find yourself in a place you never intended to be. But by then it might be too late to come to change course and to come back. You might be sitting there and thinking to yourself, well, that's, that's what I've done. Uh, and maybe you're terrified and maybe you think that there's no way back, but there is a way back. The way back is to draw near to God through Jesus. To confess your sin to God, to confess that you've trampled on Jesus' sacrifice, to seek the forgiveness that's only possible through the death of Jesus in your place, and ask God to enable you to put that sin off and to live for his glory. And for those who keep falling into the same sins, but who keep looking to Jesus, then the message is, keep responding like that. Keep remembering the cost of trampling on Jesus, but keep turning to Jesus. Keep seeking God's grace and mercy through him. Keep seeking God's spirit to work sin out of your heart. And no matter how many times you stumble, keep seeking God's grace to put off sin and to keep drawing near to him. And remember that even as you do that, God holds you as one of his children because his grace and mercy is at work in your heart in teaching you to turn from sin and to seek his grace in Christ Jesus. So first we need to draw near to God. Second, we need to hold firmly the confession. Third, we need to spur one another on. Fourth, we need to remind ourselves of the enormous cost of trampling on the gospel. Finally, God commands us to remember the future and to remember where we are. The writer says in verse 32, Remember those earlier days after you had received the light, when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So don't throw away your confidence because it will be richly rewarded. The people to whom Hebrews was written were undergoing some kind of trial. Uh, But they had also undergone trials in the past as well. And the writer urges them to look back, to remember those times in the past as they faced their present trials. They'd endured conflict, they'd endured insults, they'd endured persecution, prison, their property, property had been confiscated. And he says to them, do you remember that? Do you remember why you did that? Do you remember why you put up with those things? It was because, verse 35, you knew you had better and lasting possessions. You knew you had possessions in the future with God in a new creation. You see, they need to remember the past. Not so they could think to themselves, well, we did it last time, so we can do it again this time. They need to remember the past so that They can remember the reason they gave up everything last time. It was because they knew where they were headed and they knew they were headed for something better. If we don't remember that, if we don't remember where we're going or where we are, the danger is that we'll fall away. That's because we'll begin to think that this place is our home. We'll begin to put down our roots more and more here. And so when the time comes to choose our freedom or our faith, we'll choose our freedom. 
When the time comes to choose our home or our life or our job or our children instead of Jesus, we'll choose our home or our life. When the time comes to choose our reputation or our gospel convictions, we'll choose our reputation. When the time comes to choose our government funding or our theological commitments, we'll choose our government funding. And don't be fooled. When that time comes, people who call themselves Christians will come up with all kinds of arguments to justify why we can hang on to the world. They'll show us that we can have our cake and eat it too. In fact, they'll show us that God wants us to have our cake and eat it too. It will all seem so wonderful, so attractive, almost irresistible. That's why we need to remember what time it is, where we are, and where we're going. We need to sit loose to the world. Otherwise, when the time comes to choose, we'll choose to deny Jesus. Maybe not in so many words, but we'll deny him in our actions and in our deeds and in our hearts. But if we sit loose to the world uh, and draw near to God, if we hold on to the confession and remember the cost, if we stir one another up to love and good deeds, we'll be richly rewarded. Jesus will return to gather his people, and those who have shrunk back will be destroyed. But those who have persevered to the end, trusting Jesus, will be saved. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we draw near to you. Lord, we draw near to you in prayer now, through Jesus Christ. Lord, because it's the only thing we can do. Lord, we're such weak people, surrounded by so many difficulties and challenges and so many threats. Lord, the world around us seems to be falling apart. And so, Lord, we draw near to you because you are the source of everything that we need for life and godliness. There is nothing that we need that we cannot find in your hand. And so, Lord, we ask for your strength and your grace that you would meet us where we are and supply every need that we have. Lord, that you would untangle our hearts from this world and this life, that you would help us to sit loose to this world and to long for that future reality in a new creation with you through Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to hold fast our confession, to remember that you're faithful and that you're good. Help us to not give up meeting together, even with the challenges of COVID-19, to find ways of meeting, to find ways of stirring one another up to love and good deeds. Lord, help us to do that so that we might persevere. Help us to remember the cost of going on sinning deliberately and trampling on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to do all those things so that we would be satisfied in you, so that we would persevere to the very end, and so that you would be glorified in us. Oh Lord, please do these things. For Jesus' sake. Amen.